0: I had a crazy thought on the way to Sunday school. <laughs> Close the doors. <laughs> People are looking around the doors like, are they? I read something the other day, and I don't, you know, I, I'm the last person sometimes to say I always know when, when God tells me something. But uh, I've I just had this lesson in my head for today that's not on your sheet. And uh, I saw something that one time, and it said this. When was the last time the Holy Spirit did something that wasn't in the bulletin? And uh, so I don't know if that's affecting me. Uh, and I'm talking to Becky as we're, I'm thinking about this, and she goes, well, it would be real easy if you would decide now instead of making 200 copies of a handout. I said, but that wouldn't be my way. So I think I'm going to do this. Uh, so you got some paper to write on. I don't have any PowerPoint slides for this. Uh, This comes out of uh, uh, some concern I have or some interest I have uh, to help us understand uh, what it means to be free in Christ. You know, we've been celebrating the 4th. I wore my 4th of July shirt today. I just wanted you to know that. And uh, I, you know, there's a lot of talk about freedom. And this thought uh, just kept working on me or thinking about it. And what does it mean to be free in Christ? What what does that really mean? You know, we, we talk about being free. We talk about being, being under, from, from certain restraints. So I'm going to just walk you through some things this morning, uh, and we'll do this next week, what you've got. I know we don't have any uh, uh, blanks to fill out today, but you can just follow me if you want to. Because uh, I, I think about this in my own life that uh, one of the things that I felt in, in, as growing up as a kid is a lot of bondage. Uh, in religion and uh, a guy named, named Bruxy cavey wouldn't it's a great guy in in, uh, in uh, Canada said that religion is what you're left with when the Holy Spirit leaves the building and uh, you know that kind of that idea of religion and it, it the Greek, the, or the the anglo-saxon word religion means to bind it really has that idea of binding and closing in and, and restricting and i I just think as I grew up a lot of do's and don'ts and oughts and shoulds and things like that were part of my kind of mentality. Anybody besides me? Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, when I began to understand about freedom in Christ and what does it mean to be free in Jesus, it, it really did uh, shock me in some ways. And I'm just going to kind of walk you through some ideas here that for me at least have brought freedom. And that doesn't mean that I, I just never have to go back to them. It means that sometimes I have to revisit them. Sometimes I have to go back. So I'm just going to ask you if you'll go to your table of contents in your Bible uh, I, there's several things here that for me are just the critical issues about freedom, about f- being free in Jesus. I remember as you're turning, go to the book of James, uh, the fourth chapter. I remember reading in a book, you ought to read it sometime in your life, called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. The Christian Secret of a Happy Life by Hannah Whitall Smith, whose uh, daughter was actually married to William James, the father of American psychology, who taught at Harvard. And William James wrote a letter to Hannah Whitall Smith. One of my professors at seminary was a scholar in Hannah's work and some of her uh, studies and and writings. And William James had made this observation. Again, he was not a follower of Jesus and did not claim to be a Christian, but he said this in a a correspondence that Dr. Mel Deiter uh, discovered that William James said to her as his mother-in-law, you know, I do not have any faith in God, or I'm not at this point a follower of Jesus. He said, but your understanding of God and the freedom you experience is what I would want if I was a Christian. That's what I'd like to have. The freedom, the joy, the the exuberance. And she says in that first part of that book, she said a lot of Christians are like people that have such a severe headache. They go through life uh, uh, just uh, moaning and groaning, and then people are wondering why they're not attracted, (laughs) you know. That, that, that's it. We just go through life with this huge headache like, okay, you know, it's, it's tough being a Christian, but I'm just going to hang on. So, and so freedom here. So I just want you to look at a couple things in James chapter 4. This is a, a, a book, one of the earliest, written in the New Testament, by the way. Uh, Half-brother of Jesus, same mom, different dads. And uh, 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 that wrote, and, and I remember reading this some many years ago, uh, whenever I read this, I thought this is the freedom I need to see. In, 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 in James chapter four, it says, verse seven: Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I thought, what? It says, there submit therefore to God. Now I would suggest that submission is related up uh, those previous verses about humility. Of humbling ourselves before God. To submit to God is to take our place. Humility doesn't mean you never think of yourself, you just think of yourself less often. That's what C.S. Lewis said. It's not that you don't ever think of yourself, it's that you just think of yourself less often. And humility is that position of submission, if you will. Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I thought and the word here flee means to run, it means to get out of there. It is the idea that I have this freedom that if I will take my position of humility before God, that God, you're you're, you're the one in charge, you're the one that I look to, you're the one I depend on. If I submit to God and then resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Would you like that kind of freedom this week? Where where, where you, you stand on God's word to say, I'm going to take the position of humility. Again, not that I don't ever think of myself, but I think of myself less often humility is the idea of taking the rightful place under God that He's assigned for me. So that look at that. So it says, He'll flee. Now, here's the other one. But this is the one I want to lay down on. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and then He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify hearts, you double-minded. Now, what's freeing here to me is the sequence. I, I read this years ago, but I, I don't think I ever noticed this. The freedom. Of coming to God even before, look at it there in the in the sequence of verse 8, coming to God, drawing near to him, Him drawing, even before I clean my hands up. The tradition I grew up in said you clean yourself up, you get yourself right, and then you draw near to God. Anybody go to that church? I saw you there. (laughs) Right? Right? I want you to look at the sequence here. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. I wrote in my Bible some time ago, I said, note the order, Cliff. First draw near, then cleanse your hands. I want to suggest to you what the freedom is here. I don't think any of us have the energy or the strength to deal with our life on our own until we've drawn near to God and we know He's drawn near to us. Right? This isn't done out of some rigor. This isn't done out of some kind of I'm bad and God's mad at me. No, draw near to Him and you'll have the energy, if you will, to deal with this. It's acceptance. I, I'm reading a book finishing. It's called The Jesus Manifesto. I really recommend it. And this statement was made. And I think this comes... I, I grew up in a ter- tradition that always talked about repentance and getting right and, and then draw near to God, you know. They said this, and, and I want to I work on this more in the future. That repentance is more of a change, or repentance is less a change of direction, though we know the word means to turn around. Repentance is less a changing of direction than it is a change in connection. Think about that. Repentance is less of a change in direction. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to live right. I'm going to try to do better now. I'm going to quit doing this. It's a change in connection. To who? To God. Is that what James is doing? It's not a change so much in direction as a change in connection. That now I'm drawing near to God. I'm, I'm connected to Him. He loves me. He cares about me. It seems to me that's when I have the energy to cleanse and deal with my stuff. Anybody like that? Uh, here's an example. I, I uh, got sick last year. got sick this week. I have a like a, this is probably way, to, this is why I shouldn't do this. <laughs> I have my annual vomiting case every July. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I get sick. It seems like every July, and uh, I, I 'm I'm, I'm just uh, uh, struggling and trying to get well this past week and, and have no idea why I told you that. Uh, it 'll come to me every minute. Uh, but this, but this uh, 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 idea of cleansing, of, uh, of trying to, to deal with what my stuff is first, so anyway, okay, here was. So last July, I had this terrible illness. And I got really sick and got afraid of food and lost three pounds and thought, that's a good start. (laughs) And so I went on a diet for the first time in years. And it was funny. I watched this, and and I've talked to other people, this happens, that on the days when I weigh four times a day, a little compulsive, 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 I noticed that when I gained a little weight, you know, I kind of goofed up. Do you know what I wanted to do? Eat more. It totally destroyed my motivation. And I watched it when I lost and said, awesome. You know, at first, when I stood on it, it said, one at a time, please. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I, I was watching this in me, I thought, when I'm not feeling like I'm making progress, it drives me even more in the other direction. Is that, does that sound reasonable to you? You've seen that happen to you? And then when I am making progress or I'm sensing that, hey, this is working, I'm even more motivated. What about this? What if you operated with your stuff and your junk, if you will, on the basis that God wanted you to come to Him first before you started dealing with it? Would that motivate you to deal with it? Would that motivate you to say, this is a safe place, this is a place for me to deal with my... It just says, look at the sequence. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What What does it mean to draw near to God? What, what does that look like? Well, it seems to me that I would slow down. Psalm 46.10 that says, be still and know that I'm God. Drawing near, I think, just stop the clatter and be still. To draw near is to stop what I'm doing and be near to Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones made a statement I read just the other day that said, whenever you feel the impulse to pray, whether you're studying or whatever, stop it and just pray. Maybe if we would be still, we would sense God God drawing us. Maybe, Maybe if we'd be still, we'd... We'd sense him calling us. So look at the sequence there. I think there's freedom here. To quit thinking you gotta deal with your stuff first. Now I'm, keep going. To the right. Here's another one. Here's another one. First John. One is to the freedom to have the devil run flee from me. The other one is the freedom to draw near to God before cleansing or dealing with my stuff. And this is an important one. I first John 1 9. Maybe, maybe this is my own neurosis, maybe this is my own issue here, but in dealing with specific sin, in, deal, in dealing with failure, when it says right here in 1 John 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I, I want to show you something here I did for years. I always quoted this verse when I sinned or failed. And, you know, I tell my students, I, you know, I, I have sinned and failed in the last few months, you know, just... Just so we're keeping it real here, right? You know, maybe in the last ten minutes. But anyway, uh, it says right here: if we confess. Now, the word "confess" here just simply means to agree or say the same thing. That's all it means. It doesn't mean to promise. It doesn't mean to feel bad. It doesn't mean to beat yourself up. If we confess, the Greek word comes from to say the same thing, to agree with. Some of y'all remember remember Happy Days when it was original before Nickelodeon. Remember when Fonzie goofed up and did something He tried to say he was sorry? He said, I'm... <laughs> remember? Could, couldn't say it. You know, sometimes it's hard to agree and say the same thing. I, 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 a confession doesn't mean to cry. It doesn't mean to promise. It means to say, God, I'm going to call this what you call it. It isn't temporary to borrow something from my roommate till I have time to pay it back. <laughs> it's stealing. <laughs> it isn't stretching the truth for a good cause. It's lying, you know. Calling it what it is. Sometimes that's difficult for us to actually do that. But the freedom is here, watch this. If we do that, what does it say? He will what? He is righteous to forgive us our sins. Do you know what that word means? He's faithful and right. It's the right. Righteousness comes from the Greek word that means the right thing. He's faithful to do it and it's the what? The right thing. Have you ever thought about that? That God understands this is the right thing to do. This freedom. Now here's where I got in bondage. Maybe maybe you do too. But I remember praying this one time when I had sinned and said, Lord, you said, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. Now I ask you to forgive me. And the Spirit of God just tapped me on the shoulder and said, you don't need to ask that. And I said, ask what? He said, you don't need to ask me to forgive you. I said, if you'll confess, I'll forgive. I was adding something here. The bondage of my upbringing and the sense of not feeling good about myself and feeling shame over my failure, I would actually quote the verse and do it and then say to God, and now God, I ask you to forgive me. A friend of mine really nailed me one time. We were talking about this. When he said, Cliff, when you do that and then you ask God to forgive you, I don't like this guy either very much actually. (laughs) I hate it when people give it back to me. He said this, you are operating as if you are more faithful than God is. You did your part. What was your part, Cliff? Confess. To say the same thing. What you're accusing God of is He won't do what? His part. That's why you have to ask Him. That's why you're asking Him. It's not because this this is this enculturated Christianity that I kind of picked up like Lent all through my life, and so I would confess it, and then I would ask to be forgiven. That's not in that text anywhere. This is what we call in Greek an if-then clause. If you do this end, then this happens. Anybody else struggle with that? Anybody else? When, when you confess or you've got to go through this long, drawn-out discussion and asking and pleading and begging, I did. Until the Spirit of God put His finger and said, Cliff, you're living in bondage. That, the freedom is to say, thank God that the moment that I am willing to admit, and sometimes it takes a God a while to get there, right, for me? You know? Well, I was just exaggerating. No, you were lying. Well, I just did, I got in pressure. No, you were, you were telling the yarn. Or as my good Cajun buddy said, I was just storying. You know? Now, related to that, freedom. Could you believe today that one of the things of Christian freedom, you can draw to God, you can draw near to Him first and deal with your junk? That you can actually confess, say the same thing. And He will instantly forgive you. The, the Greek word forgive is let it go. It's the Greek word that is used in archery. Aphiami is the Greek word that is used for an archer that pulls the bow and then lets it go. That's the world and the idea that this word comes out of. He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. He, it says He is faithful, and it's the right thing to do. Why? Because you've done your part. Now it's the right thing for Him to forgive you, because He's doing His part. Do, do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever think you've got to beg and ask and 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 cajole and and promise and all kind? Of, it just says confess. Hope this is helping somebody, man. I'm telling you, I, it rattled my teeth the first time the Spirit of God nudged me about this. And said, this is, Cliff, a deep underlying sense of shame and undoneness and a sense of not measuring up that is in you that you have to deal with. This is not what I'm... Now watch this, because I think, you know, okay. So he says he will, but my sin's too bad, right? Anybody ever felt that? Not about me, you. (laughs) Of course I go, oh yeah, we think that about your sin. Have you ever noticed how it seems that we believe that God would forgive everybody else but us. I'm reading a series of... I'm just getting to read like a house of fire. i got books all over the place during a summer break. Becky couldn't even find me the other day. I was covered up, which I think was good. But I'm reading a series of, of, of essays on shame. And this person is a chaplain who was working in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. And... As this person worked with these inmates, discovered that many of them were able to forgive people that had offended them or hurt them. Maybe a parent that was on drugs that just destroyed their life and put them in a life of crime. You, you know, I mean, listen, we, we need to understand that sometimes when people get in crime and, and are doing that, it's because they've been sinned against, right? Like 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 Deborah said last week, a little girl's locked up in a closet. You know, how do you how do you deal with that? And, and so she, she reports that, that so many people uh, uh, in, in Cook County Jail that she were, were people that even though they had been so deeply sinned against, they, they could do remarkable fe- facts or acts of forgiveness to those who had perpetrated against them. And then the, the writer says they, in the, as they worked with them, they realized that they saw some incredible acts of forgiveness among themselves. Now watch this. So they can forgive the people that contributed at least to their life of crime and may have harmed them. And they can forgive each other in the jail. The people they couldn't forgive is themselves. And this chaplain said, I realized I was dealing with a different animal here. You mean you can forgive people that have sinned against you? You can forgive people in the jail that sinned? But you can't. Forgive yourself. I used to flippantly say, I'll be honest with you, I, I used to say to people when they say, well, I can't forgive myself. Well, good news, you don't have to. The Bible doesn't tell you have to. I was kind of flippant about that. Because there isn't. There's no it says you have to forgive yourself. But there's something deeper here. There's a sense in which I'm unworthy to be forgiven. I, I, I'm too bad. And so if you've wrestled with that, I want to I give you a verse for some freedom here. Look at first. Stay right there. First John two one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. I mean, okay, it's the goal. It's the plan. We're okay with that. But if anyone sins, in other words, here's the certainly the goal or the plan. We'd love for that to be going on. But if anyone sins, don't just think it's over. I'm done. What does he say here? We have, underline that word, have, a defense attorney. In Latin, advocatus is the word for defense attorney. In Greek, it's a parakletos, which means to come alongside and to defend. He says, if we do sin, we have, notice it's not go get one, find one, ask for one. What does it say? We what have have an advocate with the Father. Now, do do you live? Do I live in the freedom of understanding that I have an advocate? I have a good friend who's an attorney that I work with down at university, and he's a Christian. I think one of them. And so no, it's a bad lawyer joke. There's just too many of them. Uh, and Wendell and I have cut up over time. Uh, because he, he was a defense attorney in, in criminal litigation. And I'm always saying, I'll take him out to lunch and, and we'll goof around. and Or, I, you know, i buy him a Christmas gift. And he'll say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. I said, Wendell, I'm just keeping you on a retainer. <laughs> I just, I know probably someday I'm going to need you. <laughs> you know? Hopefully not. But I'm just keeping you on a retainer because I need to have someone who can be there for me. You already have one. He's on a retainer. He paid with it by His own blood. He paid the highest fee you could ever pay. There's nothing you can do to stop that. We have an advocate with the Father. You, you and I are going to live free if we think God is always ticked off at us. You and I are going to live free if we think God is ready to just drop the hammer on us. We're not going to live free if we don't understand that God is graciously disposed toward us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, He is pro-you. Pro-you. He's for you. He's not against you. It's the idea that we have an advocate. You don't have to go get one. Now, you know, maybe some of you said, man, I, I, I got that. But you know what? You're going to meet people who are going to struggle with this sense of shame that will demonstrate the ability to forgive all kinds of people, but never themselves. Never themselves. They don't know they have an act. So, And here's the kicker too. Notice this, and He Himself, Jesus, is the propitiation. Now that's a big, long Greek word that just means the payment. The payment for our sins. Pay- I, I tell my students this sometimes, those sounds all crazy, but you know, in one sense, Jesus doesn't forgive you. He pays for you. He pays for you. You know, I paid a couple of cars off before. And... Uh, you know, I, if the if the finance company comes and you know, I, I, you know, they come and say to me, "Hey, uh, we need another payment." I say, "Well, it's already paid for." Well, no, hey, here's the deed. You can yell and scream and holler and do all you want to do. You can call me and you know, spend all, but it's paid for. I, I don't have to worry about that. It's it's payment. I think though some of us, this is my opinion. This is part of this. I told you I didn't have this written down, so I'm just working. Okay, just pray for me. <laughs> I think some of us... I, let me say me. For a long time I lived like this and I and I struggle with it back and forth. I have to stay alert. I honestly believe that we don't believe that it's been paid. And so a lot of us live instead of pardoned, we live like we're on probation. You know, in probation, if, if you get convicted and you go on probation... It only takes one thing to send you back, right? It only takes one thing because you're on probation. You're not pardoned. You're just on probation. You better keep your nose clean. You better show up with your uh, 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 juvenile officer, whatever it is. You know, you you better you better show up because you're you're on probation. Man, I lived a long time like that. As if every failure, every Mistake. Every sin was throwing me right back into this probationary kind of thing. Now, some of y'all, maybe maybe this doesn't matter, and you're thinking, Cliff, you're a nut, and you, you, you know maybe I am. But I'll tell you, I meet, I meet a lot of people that struggle with this. It's payment for you to have to pay for it by some action or some other thing. It's what we would call in law double jeopardy. You get adjudicated on a charge, you get adjudicated, you get set free on a charge, they can't come back and get you on that. It's called double jeopardy. Isn't, isn't that good news? You, you don't live in double jeopardy with God. You, you don't live as if any minute now, He could get you. Look here what says. I, I, I like this. And I know that there are people that this, I hope, meets it. He's the propitiation for our sins, but for those of us who take it too hard and think we've been too bad, look how he ratchets this up. And not only ours, but who? The who? The sins of the whole world. Your your sin's not that bad, your failure. Jesus has got you covered and me covered because He died and paid for the sins of the entire world. I'm glad He left that in there because I've had struggles with shame and a sense of of, of I can't measure up and, and maybe I am that bad until some years ago I read and said He's not only the propitiation of the payment for my sin but for the sin of the whole world. Can I tell you something? You're not that big a deal. <laughs> you think you are, but you're not. You're not that big a deal. Deal with it. <laughs> right? I mean we think, oh my gosh, this and you're not that I don't want to offend you, but you're not that big a deal. So we're forgiven. We don't have to ask. We just confess. Our sin is not too much. He will forgive. And I want to show you another verse. Go here to 2 Corinthians. Go to your table of contents. 2 Corinthians. While you're turning there, I want to dare you to believe this for a day. For a day, okay? I want to dare you to believe this that you don't have to ask God to forgive you once you confess it. That your sin is not too big. I want to dare you to believe that today, just today if you can get it done today, why don't you try it tomorrow but I want to dare you I'm going to do it myself, let's dare ourselves that we live under the favor and love of God that Jesus Christ will forgive the minute we confess and he's paid for all the sins of the world Second Corinthians chapter 2 this has to do with life I think in terms of how we live notice, I want you to listen to the words of Paul here Now, when verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This this to me is freedom and how I can live. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now, that's biblical language for God's guidance. You know, in the book of Revelation it says, I've opened a door that no man can shut. So, So this idea that when I came to Troas the gospel of Christ a door was opened for me in the Lord this would be what you call divine direction this would be uh, what your understanding is that God is saying here's where I want you to go Paul here's what I want you to do here's how I want you to live it, this is a door now watch this but I had no rest in my spirit not finding Titus my brother but I prayed a couple of prayers and stayed That's what he says. But taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. Now, let me set it up for you. Here's the Apostle Paul, right in the New Testament. I think when he realized the door of opportunity had been opened, he knew who was doing it. And he understood that this was God's direction or guidance. And when he gets there, he said, I had no rest in my spirit. This idea, I was troubled, disturbed. Couldn't find Titus was wondering where he was. Now, I grew up again in a tradition that basically disallowed any feelings that you had. Just let go of them, you know. Forget it. I remember when I was a kid, I came home one time, got, got, you know, really cracked, I think, in the head with a baseball, you know, because uh, we played baseball all the time. And, and, I remember, and I came home, and I remember saying to my dad, man, I got hammered. He said, oh, I had worse than that in my lip and never quit whistling. Okay? but I think I have a cranial injury, <laughs> you know? And and so I was sort of trained that, hey, remember, remember the helpful thought whenever you had trouble? Well, there are lots of people who have it worse than you do. Well, isn't that helpful? <laughs> and I was sort of trained that God was this sort of, Drill instructor that he had plans and he had things and you were expendable and your life was was for him and just give it up and let's go. I understand that. But I see in Paul here a different narrative. I see in him saying, I I, I really recognized that something was wrong with me and I was struggling. And and if you will, I left. I didn't stay. Now, that by itself would be astounding. That There doesn't seem to be any recrimination or, or Paul saying, well, I really blew it here. But, but watch here. He didn't stop there. I had no rest in my spirit. Look at verse 14. I've never heard anybody teach this or preach this in context. But, now the contrast here, the post-positive here, but, means something is being contrasted that was previously said. It is now being said. Look what it says. But... I left the place, I left it, I didn't go through the door, I didn't do the ministry, I didn't... But thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Never heard anybody connect that. But it's grammatically connected by the post-positive here, but. I I remember reading that. Are you a person that... It thinks maybe at some point in your life you didn't go through a door or you didn't didn't serve in a place you should have or you should have done this and you didn't and now it's closed off to you. And you've lived with regret. You know, I should have done it. I know I should have done that. I'm just here to tell you that Paul seems to be suggesting the freedom that we can have is that God can even take our weaknesses and our difficulties when we're not up to the job. And says, even leaving, even leaving that open door, thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests to us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. I meet Christians that I know are suffering from this standpoint That there's a failure in their life somewhere. There's something they failed to do. They weren't up to it. They just couldn't do it. And they feel like their life's a wreck. I've told you this story, but I, you know. I'm fairly needle phobic. Uh, I have a big hammer by my bed. If I ever get sick, I say to Becky, break the glass and right there. I don't want to have to go to a doctor if I don't have to. And I remember having some things about Blood drives and stuff like that at the school—that just scared the living daylights out of me. I mean, when you can read the newspaper through a needle, it's pretty tough. <laughs> Little girls walking up down the hall at the school—I'd go, "God bless you. <laughs> can I buy your lunch or something?" You know. And I remember struggling with that, and I'm so thankful for people <clears throat> that do it and can do it. And you know, I, I, you know, in my back of my mind, it's you know, again, just man up, right? that sometimes is not the freedom that God wants us to live in. You know, know, from the standpoint that I have to prove and demonstrate. And I remember praying, I told you this before, I remember praying about that one day, really disturbed. I mean, really troubled. I want to be a consistent Christian. I I want to be a follower of Jesus. And I remember in praying about that one day, just hearing this in my heart and soul, when I said, Lord, I just don't think I can do that today. And I, I sensed in my spirit that voice that I've come to know that's from God that He said, I know. I know. And I've told you before, I waited for the butt. I waited. For a moment I was pleased and or eased and sensed God's affection for me. And then I waited. Because I thought, here it comes. But, in order to be a faithful follower of mine, you need to do this. You know, that was a big day for me. That God could still use me in my weakness and manifest through my life the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. It's sad. It's just sad to me when I see people who there's something in their past That they walked away from. They weren't up to it. Or they they just couldn't do it. For whatever reason. And it's hounded them. It's bothered them. It disturbs their peace. I want to tell you the Apostle Paul did that. He flat walked off from an open door. That God had opened for him. And said, I'm going to Macedonia. Are you that free? I'm not suggesting that we live our lives selfishly and never do anything. But could you get freed up from that past thing? By just looking at what Paul said again. I've never, in my life, I'm 61 years old. I've never heard anybody teach this passage in context. Ever. But thanks be to God, who when you leave Macedonia, is always leading us in triumph. I've talked to missionaries who left the mission field. Felt like an absolute failure because of some illness or problem. And I just said, hey, God can lead you here just like He can anywhere else. I've met people who had a call of ministry on their life, they thought. And they didn't go in. They did, they, and now, now they can't do it. I have a friend, I'm convinced, in Lexington, Kentucky, whose name shall be remain nameless. I'm convinced, though, he feels like he cannot even become a Christian unless he goes into ministry. I've talked to my friends and said, look, he needs to first of all understand that God can lead him in triumph wherever he is. God's that big. God's that big. Now, I'm going to back up on this one because there's something else here. We're going to get out of here. There's something else here in freedom. In chapter 2, I'm backing up. In chapter 2, Paul starts off with a guy that 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 they've disciplined In chapter, it's found in 1 Corinthians 5, where they've disciplined because he's been living with his mother. We're we're not sure if it's a stepmother or a biological mother in a sexual relationship. You'd think there weren't problems back then. (laughs) He even says, hey, this is so crazy, the Gentiles don't even do this. And so there was discipline that was exerted on this guy. You know, there was only one church in town. and So they said, you know, you need to discipline and put him out so that Paul says it's redemptive so that he'll wake up. In chapter 2 here, Paul is writing the church back and saying this. He said, verse 6, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted on him by the majority. So that, on the, verse 7, On the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be what? Overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Hey, listen, I want to get you free of something here. There is such a thing as being too sorry. There is such a thing as being too sorry for something. This is related to this idea of walking away, of leaving. Listen, there is such a thing as feeling too bad about your sin. Look what he says. You should forgive him. It's enough. Lest he become overwhelmed. I grew up in a church that thought a little bit of sorrow was good. Guess what? A whole bunch was even better. And we lived in a sense of sorrow. And Paul says, you need to forgive this guy. You need to back off. You need to get him back under the the umbrella of your love and care. Because he could get overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. One of my professors at Asbury Seminary, David Siemens, I recommend his book, uh, "Healing for Childish uh, uh, Things: Healing from Childhood." He, he, Dave, David, David, what Doctor was a was a uh, professor, but before that, he was a missionary to India. And David had this young man who came to him about some problems and things he was doing and dealing with. And David uh, said he began to work with him and try to help him. I think his name was Sanjay, I'm not sure who knows you know could be uh, but he's a young man in India and uh, David said that he would come to him and he would talk to him and they'd pray together and the young man would come back later and say it, the, the sense of grief and the sense of sorrow for my sin won't lift. it just won't lift. And David said that that he he uh, began to say, well you know uh, maybe you need to read a little more in your Bible every day. you know this is typical kinds of treatment right? It's sad, but it's kind of sometimes all we know to do. We don't really dig in. But he said, well, maybe read the Bible more, and that didn't work. So, well, maybe you should pray a little longer and go to church. Anyway, long story short, David said, the young man did everything I told him, and and, and the sense of sorrow wouldn't leave him. And he killed himself. He said, the most serious young Christian I'd ever met in India killed himself. And Seaman said, I realized then I was dealing with something different than regular sorrow. I was dealing with something deeper, a sorrow that had gone completely out of proportion. You know, I talk to parents, there are times when I talk to parents and they feel such sorrow about their kids. And I think that's too much. It's too much. I want to show you something here. Look what he says. Lest us be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to affirm your love to him. For to this end I wrote you that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient. But if you would, for, uh, whom you have forgiven anyone, I forgive also. For indeed I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sake. Watch this. Why, why did he forgive him of this sorrow? Look at verse six, uh, 11. What does it say there? That we would not what? I mean, I'm, he said, I'm telling you to forgive this guy so he doesn't come over, be overcome by excessive sorrow so that no advantage may be taken by Satan. We are not ignorant of his schemes. What's one of Satan's schemes? Excessive sorrow. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm working right out of verse 11. So, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Hey, he says, Look, you, you forgive this guy. You, 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 you let him know it is forgiven. You've been set free. Why? He'll be overcome by excessive sorrow, and we know that's a scheme. Doesn't it look nice and religious? I'm so sorry for what I did. That's good. I just feel so bad about it. That's real good. You should feel bad. You're sorry. That's the message we get. I tell you, I read that years and years ago and I thought, there's some people that need to be set free from their sorrow. There's some people that need to say, hey, you know what? The freedom here I can have. Look, there's, there is such a thing as excessive sorrow. Let me tell you you, you, you know how you can tell it's excessive? Here's how. You don't think You're good enough for God to forgive you. That's how it gets excessive. You know how else it gets excessive? When that's all you can see. You can't see the smiling face of God anymore. All you can see is your sin, all you can see is your failure. It feels religious. It feels, well, you know, I'm a really serious follower of Jesus. It's a scheme of the devil, it's one of his methods. Schemata here, or the idea of scheme, is also some of the same word used in First First Ephesians six, but the schemes of the devil. Listen, if he can't get you just to blow out and just go berserk, you know, and join the circus or the carnival, if he, if he can't just get you to blow out, he'll just work to make you so miserable you have no impact. He'll just make you so miserable. You won't have any impact. Nobody will want what you and I have. Excessive sorrow. You ever felt that? Too sorry. Again, what? when is it? When I'm too bad to be forgiven. When, when I look up, I don't see the face of God. I see my sin. I just look up and see my sin. Let me, let me show you something. Here, I'll finish with this illustration. Uh, years ago... I was at church not listening, and uh, that happens occasionally. I have a thought, and I gotta follow it, you know. Like you know, I'm that compulsive guy, and up, it was a squirrel. You know? <clears throat> here's here's how this is related. Let me give you this statement: The devil will maximize your sin, so he can minimize the blood of Jesus. Think about it now, he the, the, the devil will maximize your sin so he can minimize the blood of Jesus. Can I tell you something? Some of you, I know you well enough. This is where this excessive sorrow goes. If I had a piece of paper, I would do well, I'll do it like this. No, I won't I'd do it like this. I've held up a piece of paper before, like this, and held front person and say, What do you see? and they say, A black dot. I said, you don't see all that white paper? <laughs> right? That's excessive sorrow. See, if I held a piece of paper up in front of you, if you're like that, and I would you know, hide it, I just, I've, I've hidden it before, and I, and I hold it up and say, what do you see? It's a black dot. I go, okay, now we're working. Now we can go to work. Because I know how your brain works. So you're maximizing. There's a whole board up here. That's a little dot. So I am sitting there thinking about this. I did this. Take a pen or pencil if you got it. Do it like this. Bring this pen or pencil up to your face like this. And look at the pencil and you'll see me in the background. This is probably the best view you've ever had of me. It's distorted. How big does that pen look? Like it touches the ceiling and what? of the floor it's out of perspective it's what the devil does he's going to pull your sin like this and say look how bad this is Okay, it's bad yeah but it doesn't have to become now my entire reality it it doesn't become now it's out of focus it's out of balance here now you'll never live free if you allow the devil to maximize your sin So he can minimize the blood. He's not going to try to make you an atheist. He knows too much there. He knows you're you're not going to do that. He he knows you're not going to just one day just blow out again, join the circus. But he can do this. He can get you to the point of excessive sorrow that the scheme of the devil is to maximize your sin to the point that you cannot even see the grace of God. I've been a pastor and worked with people too long to know this doesn't happen often. Often. And you know what happens too? And I'm going to shut up. I told you I was going to let you out early, but I'm lying. That clock is fast, by the way. I'm the official timekeeper. I'm the official timekeeper. It's. I'll give you one more. I've worked with people too long. And we don't talk about this stuff. That people, let me tell you who struggles with everything I've said right here today, Okay? Everything I've said about freedom today. Here's the person that struggles with this. People who are serious about following Jesus. Not people who are just blowing and going through life. And yet sometimes we try to get at them in our preaching and teaching and we end up beating the living daylights out of people that really want to follow Jesus. We don't talk about this. So in an effort to try to get people that aren't really following Jesus, that don't care, that aren't interested... Kind of go over that, but I'm telling you, I've watched it over the years. It just beats those down. Who want to follow Jesus? Well, you'll forgive me if I didn't follow the Lord on this, or this is not what He wanted. But I, I just I want to talk about freedom today. I want to live free. I want my life to be so free that people wonder. Why do you live like that? I would like for my life to be so free that I would finally believe and live out the good news of the gospel. It is good news, by the way, right? It is good news that God loves us. And He's with us. And He wants us to be free. So, if you're going to shoot off any more firecrackers... Illegally, (laughs) come call me. (laughs) But would you be willing today, just just today, to dare all those things that are rattler? Oh well, you know. Just stop that. Just just live today, free, free. Dare to believe. Dare to believe. Who we've gone over today? Lord Jesus. We need your help. So many of us have been inoculated and in involved in religion that the good news seems crazy at times. We're just afflicted by yeah buts. Yeah but, what about, yeah but, Lord would you please free us today. As we celebrate our nation's freedom, as we... Celebrate the freedom that we enjoy. Help us. Guide us to believe today that we can be free in Jesus Christ. And that the great good news that has gone all over the globe and sets the prisoner free. The first sermon you preach, Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to deliverance to the captives. And that the poor... I'd hear the gospel preached to them. Would you, Lord Jesus, preach it to us again today and let us live in your freedom. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.